Well, there's a good time at the beginning, and there's a retrospective nostalgic time at the end. But in any endeavor, there's, oh, there we go. But there is also, of course, all that time in the middle. And the question is, what do you do with all that time in the middle? Now, that can be your life. That can be um, new events. Of course, today we're talking about really our Christian walk. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but every so often I have to kind of sit and assess and say, all right, I've been on the hamster wheel, running like crazy, trying to keep these things going. Am I really achieving what I think is important? Am I really doing what I think I should be doing? Inevitably, the answer to that in my normal life is no, um, followed by my wife and kids telling me what it is I should be doing instead. But <laughs> Nonetheless, it's important to reflect, and I, this morning I want to take the time to reflect on, as Christians, as we walk the walk and talk the talk, what about all those times in the middle? Because really, that's the, the volume that uh, most of our lives are made of. You know, it's all very neat and exceptional and fantastic when we first become Christians, when we first join a new church, when we first start a new ministry of some kind. And certainly as we tail off into the ends of our lives, we, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes. You're either scared to death or you're happily nostalgic about your time with the Lord. And all the middle, what do we do with it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today a little bit. So first of all, if you have your Bibles or your iPads or your iPhones, or a really good memory, follow along with me as we look through uh, the first three verses of Hebrews. Hebrews is my favorite book in the Bible, by the way. Um, I'm I'm the kind of guy who likes somebody who sits and philosophizes, and the author of Hebrews really does that. And, you know, it's just chock full of all sorts of good information about our walk and our faith. So, chapter 12 starts out this way. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So, it may be hard for some of you to believe But I was actually a very skilled runner in my day, and uh, I found out, I don't remember about grade 6 or grade 7, that if I just kept running, people kept falling behind me, and I would catch them, and I would get ahead of them. And, uh, you know, I I began to be sort of locally successful, and uh, discovered that I could run the 200, 400, 1500 meter races, 800 meter races, all fairly successfully. The other thing we discovered was that as the numbers went up, I did better. Um, I was a bit of an endurance racer, and uh, as a result of that, I began to, to have some success in my local area. And it was decided that we would go to regionals. So this was a big deal for me. It's the first time I'd ever been racing kind of outside of my own area. And uh, I and a couple of people from my class and my sister, Dia, uh, went along to this uh, regional meet. And, you know, as we will, we cheered one another on for various things. And I was doing okay. It's a bit of a, you know, sobering thing to realize that you may be the fastest person in town, but that doesn't make you the fastest person everywhere. And so I wasn't winning all the races by any stretch. But, you know, having looked at this, my coach went, well, 200, you know, he gets fifth or sixth, and 400, he gets fourth or fifth, and 800 and 1500, he's getting up into the, you know, at least into the ribbons. Let's try him in the 3000. Never run the 3000, but that sounded good to me. 
And so I was entered in the 3,000-meter race, and I was hoping that this would be my big event. And uh, so I, I got out there, and I started to run. And, you know, we had strategized that what I would do is try to stay with the pack till about 800 meters to go because I could run sort of high gear for about 800 meters. And so, sure enough, ran with the pack. There were three or four people out ahead of me. And one guy that you knew early on, okay, that first is gone. <laughs> He's going to win this race. There's no, just no hope. He was way out there. And you sort of start to ignore him and sort of look at the guys that you're going to try to catch. And sure enough, 800 meters, I kicked it up. And, boy, people started getting closer and closer. And pretty soon I'm passing them. And with about 300 meters to go, I realized, you know, there's only two people ahead of me. One guy I'm not going to catch because he's almost at the finish line. And the guy ahead of me. But see, what he didn't know was that I had a secret weapon. It didn't work anymore in that, and everybody knew about it. But with 200 meters to go, I could sprint. I could sprint for 200 meters. didn't matter how much running I'd done beforehand. And so at 200 meters, I kicked it up. And sure enough, this guy started getting closer and closer, and I'm getting all excited. I'm trying really hard not to breathe like I normally breathe when I run, which is <laughs> so that this guy doesn't hear me coming. And then at the corner, with about 80 meters to go, there is no question in my mind that I'm going to pass this guy. I'm going to get second in the 3,000 meters. And this voice comes from the infield. Go, Aaron, go! You're winning. You're catching him. You're going to beat him. Go! Well, guess what? He had a secret weapon, too. And once he knew I was behind him, and my sister had cheered him on, off he went. And you know what? He beat me by about a step. I wasn't super happy about Dia cheering him on, although she did a good job. And, you know, there's no question that sometimes you need that incentive to go just that little bit faster. And that's what she was for him. I still have the white ribbon. <laughs> I'm not very happy with it. But. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is all about people of faith throughout the history of biblical times. And uh, certainly the writer of Hebrews would have been well-schooled throughout all of his schooling in all of these characters who by faith had done great things. Um, he, you know, he runs through Moses and Abraham and uh, Rachel and all of these people who have just done things that are above and beyond the ordinary simply because of their faith in God. And he makes the statement, with such a great cloud of witnesses, run the race. And of course, Rome, although it was not Greece, uh, was certainly a big advocate of athletics. And uh, everybody would have understood this kind of uh, a story. You've got people cheering you from the very beginning of God's time hoping that you will continue to do God's work and live properly in a Christ-like way. And if you have such a great cloud of witnesses, run the race like you mean it. And he points out that you should take off all the encumbrances. Well, what are those? Well, there's two kinds. First of all, sin. Sin loves nothing more than to tangle you up, to keep you from running any kind of successful race. And, you know, there's nothing that will move you astray so much as a sin you're not dealing with. And if we're going to be effective day-to-day, live every day like you mean it, Christians, the one thing we have to do is weed out the sin in our lives. 
And of course, this is one of those dynamic problems in Christianity, because on the one hand, we all love our bumper stickers that say, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Um, you know, the church is not full of uh, perfect people, it's full of sinners. Well, that's all true. But it doesn't excuse the sin. You know, I like to think that we're just all in process of hopefully making ourselves better and better as we go along. And yes, the sacrifice of Christ, and we'll talk more about that in a bit, does clear our sin once forever. So as far as God is concerned, when he looks at us, he looks through that, that uh, sunglasses of Christ and sees perfect people. But as people who are trying to live Christ-like lives, we obviously have to get rid of sin. But the second thing is dross, extra junk, you know? So for some reason, I've had a whole rash of people who've been coming in to the clinic with Dupuytren's contracture. And I've never, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's uh, kind of a knobby, rough thing in your palm that starts to curl your fingers up like this. And the reason is because the ligaments are no longer free to move because there's junk stuck to them. And there's no other way to put it. It's not a tumor. It's not scarring. It's just extra junk. And it, it starts to accumulate... And the, the plastic surgeon has to open you up and pick this stuff off, little by little by little. And that's kind of how I picture the day-to-day things that slow us down and keep us from focusing on our Christ walk. Because our daily life walk is pretty darn busy. There's a lot of things we have to do, a lot of things we have to achieve, a lot of responsibilities. And sometimes our God focus just gets overwhelmed. And so we're to throw those things off and fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So to give you a slightly better story about cheering on, I uh, also had decided when I hit uh, college that I would enroll in the police half marathon. I did this with my buddy Mark, who used to be a long-distance runner, and like me, hadn't run for about two years, and my buddy Storm, who played for the Calgary Colts and could run like the wind for about 40 meters, and the, the three of us decided we were going to run that police half marathon. So we trained a tiny bit. I'm pretty sure that we ran in total less than the race, which is 13 miles, before enrolling. And we arrived in the morning of the race because we don't know much about this. We're a little nervous. We decided we we're going to go for a little run to warm up because goodness knows we needed it. And uh, we came back just to see everybody lining up. Oh, no, they're about to start the race. And sure enough, they do. So these three yahoos decide we better get to the front to get out of the, you know, out of the crowd. So we sprint to the front. You're beginning to understand that you know, maybe my running career has a few hiccups in it. Um, the first part of the police half marathon goes up straight up for about five blocks, straight up a hill. You'll be pleased to know that I made it on television because there were three of us were at the very front of the pack going up the hill. Totally unprepared for this race. Totally had no strategy. And at the top of the hill... I pulled over to the side, told the other two guys to go on, and tried to decide if I could make it with any further without just dying. <laughs> and for a while I thought not. But I was married, this young, good-looking gal, and she had told me the race goes out for a while, hairpins, and comes back, and that she was going to go over the block or two and be there to cheer me on as they came across the bridge. <laughs> All right, I can go that far. And then I'm going to stop. So I started to rock, walk, run. Little senior citizens are going by me. And I began to get my feet back under me, started to feel a little bit better, so I started to run a little more in earnest. 
But if I just make it to where Joanne's standing, then I'm done. Well, Joanne decided there were more important things to do, I have to tell you. She was never there. I don't know what happened. Um, and so I'm like, well, she must be at the next block. So I ran to the next block. And that went on for a while. And finally, I thought, I don't care. I'm just going to run. And sure enough, you know, in the end, I caught up with my buddies, and we all finished way back at the back. But the love and support of fellow believers is mightier than any guilt or shame. And if you really want to walk a proper walk, you have to have those people that are, I'm there with you. I'll be there with you. And are actually there. I mean, that would be helpful. But So the, first of all, remember that we have this great cloud of witnesses, both historical and real, around us all the time. That's really what church community is about, is to help support one another and keep going. Now, uh, the little comma in your bulletin, it's not for verse 13, but chapter 13. Don't panic. I'm not going to read it all, just most of it. And it talks about how we should continue living as people of the kingdom. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. By doing so, some people have shown hospitality to, hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those that are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. Um, keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because the Lord has said, never will I leave you, or will I forsake you. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial food, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. There's a million things in there. That is a one-packed passage. But there's some things I want to kind of focus on um, in it. So first of all, I think the overall point of that chunk of Scripture is we're to live as citizens of the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I have kind of a knee-jerk reaction whenever I hear this business of homegrown terrorism. Because I'm a first-generation Canadian, came from a long way away, Oregon, and uh, I'm really proud of my country. And I feel it's done very well for me, and I, I certainly feel like I owe the country my good behavior. And I think most of us feel that way. I certainly am very proud of this concept of the, um, you, you know, the, the willingness to allow anybody to come in with their language, with their culture, with their religion, and still be Canadian, and yet be uniquely themselves. And I think that's a great thing that we extend to the world. And then to have somebody who's been given this, this gift, in my mind, turn around and say, I don't care. I want to hurt you all. It just really makes me angry. And I am sure that if God were not the gracious, merciful God that he is, he would somehow, sometimes feel that way about us. Because often, we have been given this great gift and this great citizenship in the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes we sacrifice it um, just for our own desires. And so, really what I see this, is, uh, this passage being about is us living like God expects any citizen to live like. Just because of the gift he's given us. You know, first of all, be decent people. Love one another. It's one of the hallmarks that I see in any good church 
is that people love each other over and beyond what would normally drive us crazy, right? So we're not all perfect people, some less so than others, and we're not always easy to get along with. But God's love supersedes that, and if we can show that to one another, then right there we've established the, you know, the hallmark of Christianity. Show hospitality to others. Don't just be nice to the people you know, but be nice to others as well. I think it's fascinating that Paul just throws this in here. It's kind of, you, know, you know, some people have entertained angels because of this without even knowing about it. You have to stop and think back through your life and say, you know, where would they have been? Maybe I did. I don't know. And uh, I certainly had some stories of people who discovered later that probably that's exactly what they did. And I think it's fascinating. You should keep your marriage bed pure because if you can't deal properly with the most intimate relationship you have here on earth, how in the world can you talk properly to the Lord? And uh, so that is just almost a given. Don't let money or the greed that goes along with it become your life. Because God's already said in other passages, you can't serve both. You serve God or you serve money. It doesn't work to serve both. And you have to understand and always appreciate that God will take care of you, maybe not in the fashion you think you should be taken care of, but he will take care of you and you don't need to worry about your income. Remember your leaders... But don't get caught up in strange teachings. We all, throughout the course of our life, have had a few things where we went, that really interests me. I'm really into that concept. And if I could just somehow make it religious, then that would legitimize it. Now, we don't say that to ourselves, but that's what we do. And that's where some really terrible things, like Jim Jones and you know the cults that take people's money, the uh, leaders on TV that want nothing more than you to send them 20 bucks, so that accumulates over time, and they have millions and you have none. But also just some strange teachings around uh, Christianity. Christianity's been around for 2,000 years, and it's been pretty stable. You go back through time, and you'll find that most people believe about the same kind of things most of the time. The weird and wonderful stuff doesn't usually work out. There's a reason for that, because it's not really godly, it's just been painted with a godly brush. And we're hoping that somehow we'll fool God. I've never seen that work. I don't think it will. So stay away from things. You know, it's, it's the too-good-to-be-true rule, right? When you get the phone call from the scammer and they start telling you about this deal that's just too good to be true, everybody will tell you it probably is too good to be true. If you find something that lets you off the hook for some sin that you're particularly interested in or that goes down a pathway that you've always been kind of intrigued with, but nobody else seemed to agree with, that's probably not for you. It's probably not the right thing. And so if you're going to live as a citizen of the kingdom, you need to stay away from those things. The other thing that comes into this is uh, pride. So pride is the enemy of good citizenship. And by pride I mean, I'm so whatever, that I don't need to be like other people. I can do things that they can't and be okay. You're probably fooling yourself. The third point comes in verse 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and don't forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. You know, the old covenant was a covenant of sacrifice. 
You take a living, breathing creature and you kill it. Which again, wouldn't have been that surprising to him. That's how everybody ate. But then you give it away without taking any of it. You give it to God. On a very practical uh, side of things, that was how the priests were supported because they got all that food when it was left over. But some of it was just consumed, just, just burnt right up as an offering up to the Lord. And it was God's way of making sure people understood that for every sin, there is a consequence. But you never get to catch up, because you're always a little bit behind. You know, the sacrifice you offer today doesn't help you tomorrow. The new covenant is very different. There's no high priest you have to go through other than Christ. You can speak directly to God through the Lord. Moreover, the sacrifice has been made. Christ was the perfect sacrifice. Interesting, he's the sacrifice and the high priest. He's got it covered. Our response to that should be, what do we offer up to the Lord? doesn't ask much, really, when you think about it. He wants a sacrifice of praise. He wants to hear that we appreciate who he is, what he does, and the things he's given us. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Oh, and don't forget to do good things, because those are a sacrifice to God. And they are pleasing in his sight. You know, he gave the ultimate mercy. Absolute rebellion against God, we've all done it, ignored because of the sacrifice of Christ. So if he's willing to extend such mercy to us, we should extend it to others. And finally, how do we live? Well, we live collectively. And we've talked about this a little bit. But verse 17 says, Have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do it so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for this would be of no benefit to you. Now switching to the first person, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now this does not in any way negate our... uh, um, our need to be wise with our leaders. Following somebody who's clearly leading us down a wrong path is not being biblical at all. Paul is talking about those leaders who, to the best of their ability, are leading us on our walk because of their right relationship with the Lord and wanting to help others. So Tom's not here, so we can say he does that, you know? He helps to lead us. He helps to guide us. He helps to mold all of us in the image of Christ. And in so doing, he's accountable to the Lord. So it's not something you take lightly. And it's certainly not something that we should be causing trouble. Now, there are other leaders. Jason was up here earlier, the leaders of our church, certainly many leaders within the congregation. The point is that don't exasperate the leadership. You know, there are things that are truly important, and there are things that just bug you. Unfortunately, guess what the leaders get to deal with most of the time? So, we're having communion soon. Churches have split over the question of whether there should be one glass or many. Should it be leavened bread or unleavened bread? Should it be wine or should it be grape juice? Should it be white grape juice because you don't have to take the stains out? That is exasperating and pointless and useless. The Lord wants people who are supporting their leaders and are living in what matters. How then shall we live? Well, we should live as people saved by grace. 
attended by the Holy Spirit on a daily basis and anticipating the fullness of God's kingdom. And we are cheered on by a great cloud of witnesses, both those who have gone before us and those who worship with us. And that is how we should live. It's time now for our communion time. And uh, we have the practice here that you come up, take a piece of bread, break it off, dip it in the juice and partake together. Um, I have a word of prayer in a minute and we'll call the uh, service forward. But just a couple thoughts about this. If we're going to live day to day, week to week, month to month, year by year, decade to decade as Christian people, Christ followers, then we need to have something that continues to spur us on. One of those things is the communion table. Do this, Christ said, in remembrance of me. It does help to remember. In the same way that, you know, your birthdays and your anniversaries help just for a moment to focus on what's gone before. The bread and the wine represent the sacrifice and the new covenant. So it's both a reminder of what had to be given, but also of what's been promised. And that promise is a new life with Christ in his kingdom.